much. Good evening. Let's cultivate our motivation. So we're always reflecting on the kindness of others and seeing how we're interdependent and how everything we are, everything we have, everything we do is dependent on others. And really letting it in that we are and have been and will be the recipient of an incredible amount of kindness. And so we train our mind to be always aware of the kindness of others and always aware of their misery not just the ouch misery, the evident suffering, but also our own and others' unsatisfactory condition of things changing all the time and never finding satisfaction in what we do, although we try so hard. And then also thinking of the unsatisfactory condition of just having a body and mind under the influence of afflictions and karma. So when we think deeply about our own and others' predicament and deeply about the kindness of others, It helps love and compassion arise in our heart. And then this leads to the great resolve to improve the situation of sentient beings. And that uh, leads us to generate the bodhicitta, the wish to become a Buddha for the benefit of all beings. So let's have that as our motivation for being here this evening. So we talk about the kindness of others and we talk about repaying their kindness and we talk about appreciating kindness and when somebody asks us to do a small favor we say no true or not true you know I don't feel like it can you help me oh I'm busy Can you help me with this? I don't feel like it. (laughs) I need this for, you know, just somebody to give me a hand with this. No. Stomp your feet. Yeah, stomp your feet. No. Because I'm going to meditate on the kindness of sentient beings. (laughs) And you're disturbing my meditation by asking me to do something. I remember one time when I was a baby nun standing at Copan talking to somebody and this person was just chit-chatting, you know, and I'm sitting there thinking, just be quiet, I want to go meditate on compassion. (laughs) Yeah? But this is kind of the way we are, isn't it? I mean, all throughout the day, we we generate our motivation when we wake up and, you know, our stand-up meeting and before all the activities. And and then somebody says, "Mm, you feel like helping me do X, Y, Z? No. (laughs) Yeah. So there's uh, some meditations on the disadvantages of self-centeredness and the benefits of cherishing others. 
that are actually quite important that we do. And uh, those two meditations help us get over this hump of, you know, I'm just not in the mode. You know, it's kind of inconvenient to help you. And anyway, what do you do for me? But I'm going to go meditate on the kindness of sentient beings in the past life, present life. (laughs) We're so funny. I mean, there's such a disconnect between, you know, what's going on in here and what's going on up here. So this meditation about the defects, the disadvantages of the self-centeredness is quite an important one. Because when we do it, we come to see that our self-centered attitude is our own enemy. Yeah. So it's not that we criticize ourselves for being selfish. Yeah, that doesn't do any good. But because we want ourselves to be happy, we seek out what's really our enemy. And that's our enemy. Yeah. Because all the merit that we create is dependent on others. So how can we leave others out of the equation? You know, if we want to make an offering and create merit by making the offering, how did we get the offering to give? Well, somebody gave it to us. Even if we paid for it, still, it was produced, it came our, our way through somebody else. Yeah. So if we're just constantly thinking about ourselves and what's good for me, and, um, you know, and then blaming ourselves for being selfish, that doesn't work at all. Because you know, one part is the extreme of just looking out for me, and the other part of the, is the extreme of I'm a bad person because I'm selfish. Okay, so And we can't get anywhere in the path with either of those two extremes. So what we really have to focus on very clearly is the disadvantages of the self-centered thought and how it harms us and prevents our own happiness and stops us from actualizing the aims that are deepest in our hearts. Because we say, you know, I want to make my life meaningful and beneficial for others. You know, this is what we say, this is really what we mean in the core of our hearts. We do want to make our lives meaningful and beneficial for others, don't we? But what is it that impedes us from doing that, that gets in our way of, of really fulfilling our deepest heartfelt wish? What gets in our way is a self-centered thought. You know, the one that says, but me first, and I'm more important. And, you know, other people are here to serve me. Right? You know, we, we have that kind of mind, you know. Um... So, so we have to really look and see, okay, I really want to create merit. What get, gets in the way of my creating merit? It's my self-centeredness. The mind that says, I don't want to get up in the morning. I don't feel like setting up the altar. You know, Generosity? How can I give the least amount and not look cheap? <laughs> okay, so what's behind all of that is the self-centered thought. So it's that self-centered thought that prevents us from creating the merit, which is what we know is the life food, the life support of our Dharma practice. And then when we are doing confession and we're regretting all of our negativities, what was it that, you know, got us involved in negativities to start with? It's not our love and compassion. Yeah. What what makes us be curt and short with other people? It's a self-centered thought, isn't it? Yeah. And what what makes us stingy? The thought thinking about me. And what makes us blame others? Self-centered thought. Okay. So you know why do we have all this negative karma that we have to spend so many eons purifying? Because of the self-centered thought. 
So instead of seeing the self-centered thought as our best friend, yeah, we need to look at it as something there and say, you're my worst enemy. You know, because we are not our self-centered thought. Yeah, don't, confu- don't get confused and think you're inherently selfish. That doesn't do any good. Okay, we're not our self-centered thought. It's just a voice in our head. But it deceives us all the time. And it deceives us in such a clever way by pretending to be our friend. And we're so foolish that we follow the big liar. <laughs> yeah. So it's important to, to really do this meditation and see the, the disadvantages of the self-centeredness. And when we do, then it makes it much easier to oppose the self-centeredness. Because then when it raises its head and it starts clamoring, I want some attention, what about my way? I've been doing enough good for sentient beings. What about me? You know? <laughs> uh, when, when the self-centered thought starts chattering away, we can notice it for what it is and say, you, you're the thief that's taking away my virtue. You're the thief that's preventing me from progressing on the path. Okay? So we do this, again, without blaming ourselves, without self-hatred at all. And I think this is a very skillful thing, you know, how the Buddha really differentiated between, you know, the conventional self and then this very afflicted, out of touch with reality noise that's in our head, you know, that always says, I'm the most important. Okay? But because we've been schooled uh, since beginning this time in the self-centered thought. And because our society really encourages it, we're expected to be selfish. And, the, you know, there's a magazine called Self and, you know, iPhone and iPad and iPod and i everywhere. Yeah. Uh, and so it encourages that. But we really have to notice that and see it for what it is and not follow it. Yeah? So, you know, when the next time you hear yourself say, either in your head or out of your mouth, I don't feel like it. (laughs) You know, stop and say, oh, but I can create so much virtue if I extend myself to somebody and here I'm talking about you know doing something virtuous to help somebody I'm not talking about you know somebody wants money for booze and we say no and we say oh I'm so selfish I should give them money for booze I'm not talking about that stuff okay but just you know when people need help and and our mind says I don't feel like it get off my back leave me alone don't boss me around You know, look at that mind and say, yeah, I know that mind. It's been there for a long time and it's been causing me a lot of misery. Because what lies behind all the guilt that we feel? Self-centered thought. Yeah, so really training, training our mind that way. And then training our mind similarly to see all the benefits of cherishing others. And how it helps us to actualize our heartfelt wish for a meaningful life and for liberation and enlightenment. And, you know, how we really can contribute to the benefit of others when we have the thought that sees, you know, that cherishes them and we see the advantages of cherishing them. Yeah. So to stop this mind that creates so many walls between us. I was reading, you know, Tenzin Kacha gave us the, this book, um, Tattoos on the Heart. And uh, he has a chapter in it about, you know, how we build walls and how we then break through walls. And I've got to tell you this story. Please excuse me. I'm just quoting the book. <laughs> um, but I just cracked up. 
so because uh, the man who wrote it is a Christian uh, Catholic father um, who uh, set up homeboy industries you know to give all the gang members jobs so he would have gang members from different gangs that were enemies working in the same place so one time um, there were there were two gang members I hope I'm not confusing the stories here but there were two gang members were, oh, working at, at one place from opposite gangs and when the second one was newly hired he said you know kind of I'll work here but I'm not going to talk to this guy yeah and so they just didn't speak but they worked in the same place and then he um, when father when the father took them both of the boys uh, with him when he was invited to give a speech because he talks a lot about homeboy industry so sometimes he brings the kids with him so they were staying at some nice hotel in the Bay Area and uh, standing on the balcony and the whole ride up there you know the, the priest was keeping up the conversation because the two boys wouldn't talk to each other you know even that's just the three of them <laughs> and so they get to this hotel and they're standing on the balcony of the hotel and the the father is looking out and there's this old couple you know that's holding hands and he thinks it's so sweet that they've probably been married you know 50 years and just how affectionate and caring they are for each other so he's thinking this and then these two boys are standing there with him who haven't spoken to each other for and one boy nudges the other one and says that's disgusting <laughs> looking at the old couple <laughs> and the father says what's this you know what, what are you talking about what's disgusting and the, the boy says it's just so disgusting they're under the influence of Viagra <laughs> <laughs> And the two boys, these two gang members, just cracked up, rolling on the floor in the in laughter, and that whole wall that they had built between them was gone in an instant. Yeah. So I thought that was such a cute story. I mean, I just cracked up, but it was, um, you know, such a cute story. How we build these walls that don't need to be there, and then just a moment of humor can completely take that whole wall down yeah and so too you know how we build these walls between us with our self-centered thought yeah and then we wonder why we feel lonely yeah and it's because of that self-centered thought so let's focus more on, on really seeing the benefits of cherishing others and then go about doing it and then of course we feel more connected okay so shall we finish the quiz today <laughs> okay so we um, we're on question 10 right okay so what is the argument refuting partless particles in terms of the sense powers and their objects and so this was in the context of mindfulness of feelings establishing mindfulness of feelings okay so first of all what's why is this argument under uh, establishing mindfulness of feelings okay because contact leads to feelings and contact comes about through the meeting of the object the sense power and the consciousness okay so this is examining how do the object and the sense power connect to you know and lead to the con the the consciousness that perceives the object so here is where we find the refutation of partless particles because there there were some ancient Indian schools and actually some Buddhist schools that said that you know 
if you break everything down, you come down to the smallest component of all matter, which cannot be further divided because it has no parts. It's partless. Okay? And there's some scientists, too, that, you know, think, let's find the smallest, uh, you know, partless particle. So here we're talking about doesn't have directional parts, northeast, southwest, top, bottom, you know, which means it can't really have any kind of physical parts at all because as soon as you have physical parts, you have directions. Okay, so what's, what's the argument against partless particles in relationship to the sense powers and their objects? Yeah? Well, it boils down to that it's not possible. <laughs> <laughs> what's not possible? It's not a partless particle because any way you look at it, they either they can't touch or they can't be different. I, I can read it, but that's kind of how I understand it. Like you can't, the space between them goes to nothing, and that doesn't work. Okay, now why, if you have partless particles, if they touch, then the space. Well, wait a minute. You're saying they can't touch. They can't touch. Why not? Well, what part because they have no parts, parts with, which to, with which to touch? What part would touch what part? There's no rights. <laughs> Because to touch, you need one part touching another part. You need one side touching another side. So if you were to try and get these to touch, what would happen? They could, yeah, they completely merge and become one without anything getting any bigger. Okay, so that doesn't make any sense. Okay, now, and so you couldn't have contact between an, an object and its and it's the sense power, you know, if the particles of each one just kind of merged and became completely the same. Now, what about if they didn't touch? Well, then they don't contact. (laughs) (laughs) If they don't touch, then they don't contact because there's a space between them. Well, but if there's no form... Why you call the particle if there's nothing? Well, that's a good question, too. If it doesn't have any parts, how can you even identify it? Yeah. You know, because there's to... nothing, there's nothing. Yeah. Well, no, it could have other kind of parts or other kind of something, but it doesn't have directional parts. Now, how it could have other kind of parts without having directional parts, I don't know. It's hard to get. Yeah, but this this was a real big issue for people in ancient India, you know, because now we know that like contact occurs and that there's some chemical reaction and that the the um, the atoms and molecules in the sense receptors are changed due to contact with the object, you know, that that somehow. They create, I mean, the scientists can tell you better than I can about that, okay? But that there's, they, there's some chemical change or electric change that happens because of the contact, you know? And so I think you would have to say in that case that both the object changes and the, the nerve ending changes, wouldn't you? You know, we usually focus on the nerve ending changes and then that sends the thing all the way up. Okay? But we know that, that when there's chemical reactions or electric reactions, that uh, both sides change and, and are different than they were before. Yeah? Okay? But in, we know that now, but in ancient India they had this theory of partless, or at least the lower schools did, this theory of partless particles of, you know, of earth, water, fire, air, and uh, everything was a combination of these kinds of particles. Yeah. And they were the smallest possible particles of which everything was composed. Okay. And in the West, they used to think this too, didn't they? It's, it's not that this is some foreign culture. It's, you know, they used to have the same theory in the West. Yeah. So uh, the Prasangikas and, and the Chittamadrans, you know, said, but this doesn't make sense. You know, how can you have contact? 
how can you build things by putting things together if there's partless particles? Okay. It's the idea that they can't co-mingle. So co-mingling involves change. Yeah. Yeah, co-mingling involves change and co-, co yeah, exactly. So there could be no external objects at all. Well, that's, that, yeah, and see, that's where the Chittamadra school takes it. They say you there's no partless particles, so therefore there's no external objects. Therefore, the object and the mind that's perceiving it are both produced by the, kar- the karmic seed that's on the mind basis of all. So that's why the, the refutation of the partless particles comes with the Chittamatra school, because it's their way of getting to there's no external objects. Everything, the substantial cause of the objects we are perceiving is karma. Okay? Now, the Prasangikas don't believe in this no external objects. They say there are external objects, but they're not truly existent external objects. But still, there's no such thing as a partless particle. Yeah? Because you can't have contact. You can't have things building upon each other. Okay? It seems like a very peculiar argument to us. It's, I know personally it's not one that's ever really grabbed me. Um, but, you know, for people who have that very strong view, this is going to really shake it up. Yeah, if you see the world as composed of inherently existent smallest particles. Yeah. Uh-huh. What helped me a little bit to understand this is the, the notion that this came about through meditative experience where people were trying to see what was the smallest mm-hmm. thing you know, that they could perceive or, or yeah, perceive yeah. somehow. You know, that kind of made it brought it to life a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, maybe some meditators had this experience, but I would think if you're, since partless particles don't really exist, mm-hmm. if you're really doing correct meditation, how are you going to perceive them? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I guess it would enable the things like earth, water, fire, air, and they took the different categories of things and kind of broke it down as far as you could see it. That uh-huh. started to make sense to me as well. Right. It was a point of conversation. Yeah. No. Yeah. Because, you know, if you're talking about, well, how do objects exist, then you have to have some theory that talks about how they exist. Okay, and then uh, question 11. In terms of true existence, why can't a consciousness perceive an object that that occurred before it, at the same time as it, or after it? And how does a consciousness perceive an object conventionally? So, uh, conventionally speaking, when we perceive an object, does the object exist at the same time as our mind, prior to the mind that perceives it, or after the mind that perceives it? Conventionally speaking. Yeah, the object is the cause of the consciousness, so it exists before the consciousness. Conventionally, right? Yes, I'm just in my mind. So these three things come together and that produces the next moment of consciousness. That's what we're saying. Yeah, what you're saying is that the object and the sense organ and the previous moment of mind all act as conditions that produce the moment of mind that that perceives the object. Okay, so the object must exist before, just a fraction of a moment, before the consciousness that perceives it. But it's interesting, when we look at stars, they exist eons before we're perceiving, or, you know, millions and billions of light years before we're perceiving them. Yeah, but it's on the basis of the light that we label the star. Isn't it? If you don't perceive light, you're not going to label star. And so that star may actually, at the moment, we're perceiving it because it's so far away. That star may not exist at all. 
Yeah, And so even when we're perceiving something here immediately, the green I'm perceiving, you know, seems to exist now, but actually since it was the cause of what I saw, the cause of my consciousness perceiving it, it actually has ceased before I perceive it. Isn't that an interesting thought? If something is the cause of something, it ceases before that thing arises, doesn't it? So that particular moment of green that I'm perceiving doesn't exist and there's another moment of green okay yeah why you hear thunder and lightning are they separate right yeah why you perceive thunder and lightning at different times because both of them have actually finished but they, they the waves take different amounts of time to reach us okay so conventionally, the object exists before the consciousness perceiving it. Okay. Now, if you speak in terms of true existence, why can't a truly existent conscious, uh, truly existent sense uh, power perceive a truly existent object that exists before it? It <laughs> but but conventionally speaking, it still works. Why wouldn't it work with inherent existence? Because it's permanent. It's completely separate. Okay. Okay. Because when when something is inherently existent, it can't interact. It's permanent. So if it's ceased, it's totally gone. You know, something that's inherently existent cannot act as a cause for something else because it exists independent of everything else. Okay. Now, what about the object and the sense power existing at the same time? Can that occur? No. What? No. No, why not? Because if they, well, if they arise at the same time, then... The object hasn't arisen yet for the consciousness to perceive it by the time the consciousness arises. So the consciousness is arising without perceiving any object because the object hasn't arisen yet until the consciousness arises. I didn't get that. Yeah. <laughs> why can't why can't the sense power uh, you know, and or the conscious, the consciousness and the object exist at the same time. Because we need to have an object for consciousness to perceive it. Mm-hmm. So if the consciousness is arising while the object is arising, that means the consciousness is the cause of it wasn't an object because the object didn't exist yet. The object doesn't exist until the consciousness does. So the consciousness is arising without. It. So the the object doesn't exist until the consciousness exists. So then they exist at the same time. But the consciousness is arising from an object that the object didn't exist yet for the consciousness to arise. So the consciousness is arising from nothing. Okay, so you're saying if they arise at the same time, since the consciousness needs to have a cause, and if there was nothing there the previous moment for the consciousness to perceive, then it would be arising without a cause. Okay. Okay, that makes sense. And what about the object existing after the consciousness? That doesn't make any sense at all, does it? Yeah, because a cause has to exist before the result. And the cause has to cease before the result is experienced. But in the conventional way, the object's still there, though. Well... In, in the conventional way, in the sense that, you know, if we're not saying the first moment of the cup and the second moment of the cup, yeah. I mean, we say, I'm looking at the cup, and the cup is existing throughout all that time. But actually, the cup that we're perceiving at this moment was the cup that existed in the prior moment because it acted as the cause for that consciousness to come into being. Okay, but if the object and the consciousness were truly existent, then they couldn't interact at all because they would both have their own essence independent of each other. And this would be an object without depending on a consciousness. And the consciousness would be a consciousness without depending on an object. 
And that's exactly how we see an object in a consciousness, isn't it? Isn't it? It feels like the consciousness is there, the, the, uh, the visual consciousness is there, and it's not seeing an object right now, but it's still a visual consciousness, inherently from its own side, without depending on an object. That's how we see it, isn't it? And this object is an object from its own side without needing to be established by being perceived. Yeah, But when we look at the definition of like a knowledge, an object of knowledge which is simultaneous with phenomena or existent, it's something that is perceived by mind. Yeah? Or perceivable by mind. So you can't establish the existence of anything without some kind of mind that perceives it. Yeah, think about this. But it feels like we can. It feels like the object is out there existing from its own side without needing any kind of mind to perceive it or to label it, or have any interaction with it. But how are you going to establish the existence of an object that is not perceivable by consciousness? Because you're going to have to then have a consciousness that perceives an object that is not perceivable by consciousness. You see, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So there could be a bunch of Casper, the friendly ghost, filling this whole space around us, but we just can't. We just can't perceive them. That's the thing that seems so funny. There's no way to refute it because we can't establish it. (laughs) Well, okay, so if there's Casper the friendly ghost buzzing around here. This feeling is everywhere. Everywhere. Okay, is our perception the only perception that can validate the existence of something? No. No. Yeah, cats and dogs can establish the existence of things that we can't establish. And we can also establish the existence of some things through inference. That's a reliable cognizer. Okay. Well, you can you can refute also through inference. You can establish, but you have to establish the non-existence of something by proving that it's impossible for such a thing to exist, like partless particles. You see? Yeah, you do it through logic reasoning. Yeah. Or if you should be able to receive something there with a valid cognizer, and there's no reliable cognizer that can perceive it, you know, like if there were an elephant in this room, we should be able to see it. None of us see an elephant, I hope. <laughs> if you do, <laughs> yeah. So, so we can establish the non-existence of the elephant in the room. Okay. Now what happens if one person perceives an elephant in this room? Does that mean there's an elephant? Yeah, you know, you could you could trace it and see that there's some um, impaired sense power there along the way. You know, maybe the person's on acid. Maybe they've you know, they're who knows what. There's some something going on in their nervous system. Okay. So you can see that there's some impairment in a sense power. Because one of the conditions for, you know, when we're perceiving something to exist is that it can be also, it's not refuted by another, by a reliable cognizer. Yeah. But we can't establish venerable tarpus ghosts or not. Venerable tarpus ghosts, can we establish or not? That's true, not with our senses. Yeah. So Casper is could be. I hope he's listening to teachings and getting some Dharma imprint. <laughs> well, actually, you know, the um, the 
before you teach this one prayer that you do, where you invite all the devas to come and listen to the teachings. Yeah, so they all come and nobody sees them. Hmm? <laughs> they see each other. It doesn't have to be our mind that establishes the existence of something. It just has to be a reliable cognizer. Because if it was always our mind, you know, could we establish the existence of the Arabian Sea? No. Yeah. But does it really come down to establishing on a basis of logic and inferential cognition instead of perceptual, like in terms of people having common shared experiences of like perceiving God or some kind of extra, you know, super normal experience that many people uh, kind of have a general Okay. Okay, so there can be some supernormal experience that many people have. That doesn't mean that they had re- all had reliable cognizers when they were seeing that. So then does that mean that to validate on it, we really have to ultimately rely upon inferential cognition? You have to see what, what kind of uh, object it is. If it's an evident object that's perceivable by sense consciousnesses, then you have to establish it that way. Um, although sometimes you can do through logic too. If it's if it's an object that is um, per, that is slightly hidden, then it has to be established through reasoning. If it's an object that is very hidden, then it's established through relying on the testimony, authoritative testimony. Okay. So many people can say we experience God, the Creator, who's permanent. But you can refute the existence of a permanent creator. Okay, so they may have had some experience and they may have labeled it God, the permanent creator, but that wasn't a correct label for what they actually experienced. Okay, so just because somebody says I experienced X, Y, and Z and gives it a label doesn't mean that they actually gave it the right label and that that thing, whatever it is, they perceive exists. Yeah? That's what a lot of mental is defined as. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's what a lot of mental illness is defined as. People are seeing things and giving them labels, but it can't be, you know, validated by another reliable cognizer. So is this another way in which we depend on the kindness of other sentient beings to have perceptions? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, they usually don't talk about that, that being the kindness of, of other sentient beings, but definitely, you know, to create a common world where, you know, I mean, yeah, we have a, sh- we have a shared perception because we have shared language and, and so on and so forth. Okay, and other sentient beings can help us if we're having a wrong perception. Because we have wrong, you know, cognizers all the time. And we often, you know, are very defensive about uh, and protective of our, our unreliable cognizers. Every time we are angry, we are having an unreliable cognizer. When other people try and help us, what do we say to them? Get lost. (laughs) I'm angry and I'm right and what I'm perceiving exists in the way I'm perceiving it. Yeah, actually it doesn't. Our mind is completely off the wall. Hmm? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, quality of ignorance that we can't tell when we're having a reliable cognizer and when we're having a wrong one. Yeah, we can't tell. When, we're, when our mind's under the influence of attachment, we really think what we're perceiving has all those wonderful, beautiful qualities. And we really think that having that is going to bring us happiness. And it really feels like the happiness is inside the object. And that's why we have to get it. And all of that is completely unreliable cognition. You know, 
It's like seeing flowers in the sky and rabbit's horns. But when somebody tries to tell us, we say, no, 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 you don't understand. This person, this object, whatever it is, is so wonderful. It has these qualities for sure. It'll definitely make me happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have a question. Uh-huh. Um, I watched on a documentary where they were talking about um, Native Americans. Mm-hmm. When Columbus's ships were coming to the shore, they, they couldn't see them because their mind didn't have, like, they couldn't possibly conceive the ships. Mm. And the shaman was sitting on the shore, and he noticed, like, ripples, and he was just very curious. And every day he went out and looked on the horizon, he looked at the ripples, and, like, over time, the ships manifested. Can you explain that to me? Mm. Okay, so uh, so you're saying that um, you heard that when the Columbus was coming, that the Native Americans couldn't perceive the ships because they had no uh, language for the idea of a ship coming, you know, uh, from the horizon. And no concept. And no, yeah, and no concept of that. In the same way that when you know, uh, there was somebody who landed on the moon, you know, people in very remote places would say, that's crazy, that's impossible. And also, if you show to, like, tribes that have never seen photographs before, if you show them a photograph of something, they can't identify that object. Yeah? Which is interesting, because we're very, you know... We, we can, we're so used to seeing photographs and we can identify the object in it. But if you haven't been trained to pick out certain colors and put them together in a certain way because the thing is flat, then you're not going to per- perceive that as a picture of a person or a picture of something else. Yeah? So the same way with the ship coming across, you know, there's no concept of there being a ship that can float on water, that can, that can you know, approach from a, from a far space. And they too, I don't know if, if they thought that the world was round and that things could come from the horizon, but could you imagine, you know, if you've never learned that the world is round and then from the horizon you see something coming towards you, you wouldn't know what to think of it. Where did it come from? Mm-hmm. Hmm? It almost seems like it would be like one of those M.C. Escher things where you're looking at yes. something. Yes. You know there's two images in there, but you can only see one of them. Yes. And then to kind of get your mind to try to turn and twist and, you know, it's like right. it must have been something like that in terms of their experience. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that, and you can really see that, that we look at things and they seem so concrete out there. But when you think about things like this, then you see how what we think is concrete is so dependent on conception. Yeah, and on term, you know, concept and label. Hmm? But we're so habituated with it that it seems like it has its own existence out there and that the label is the object, you know, and that all those parts are there together inherently forming that thing. Yeah? Side thing, but I don't understand why in so many of the analogies they use that idea of putting the sticks of the stones together with the illusion. And that, and oh, okay. Is it, is it just like, okay. 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 So, um, so many times when we're talking about emptiness and how things uh, don't have their own essence, but how they appear mm-hmm. to the mind, then they use the example of in, in ancient India. You know, I've, I've, I remember one time we gave Geshe Sonarinchen such a hard time about this, you know. Geshe, have you ever seen this? They always use this example. Have you ever seen somebody have, you know, stones and sticks and 
make a spell and see a horse and an elephant. Have, have you that ever been your experience? Yes, no. Do you know of anybody who's ever seen that happen? You know. So, you know, but but apparently, I guess, in ancient India, it could happen. They they use that analogy a lot. Okay, and they use the analogy of casting the spell on the the pebbles and sticks, and so that they appear as horses and elephants. They use that specifically in the uh, Svatantrika Madhyamaka school to to indicate their view. Okay? You know, because, well, it's a whole long story. We won't get into it right now. Okay? But, you know, so, but then other examples we can identify with. You know, the reflection of the moon in water, a reflection of a face in a mirror, a mirage. You know, they didn't have holograms or TVs then, but I think those are excellent examples of things appearing very real, but not existing as they appear. You know, conventional examples that we can understand. Okay, so we have a few minutes left. I won't... um, Well, actually, there was a question um, that I'll answer that somebody asked a few weeks ago, and uh, and then we'll be finished with the four mindfulnesses and then we'll continue next time with the um, paths and ground. Okay, so somebody asked a question that um, is it possible for somebody to be practicing the Dharma and to have started along the path without knowing it and labeling it? Okay, so here to to answer that question, we have to ask, well, what does starting along the path mean? Yeah, and and that isn't clear to my mind because starting along the path could mean so many different things to many many different people. You know, technically speaking, yeah, then if to let's say, enter the, the first, the path of accumulation of the hearer's vehicles. To do that, you have to have full renunciation or the determination to be free. To enter the first path in the bodhisattva vehicle, you have to have uncontrived bodhicitta. Okay? So, could somebody have uncontrived bodhicitta or renunciation you know, without knowing that they have those? I don't think so. Yeah? Because it seems to me that if you have those realizations, you would have have to have done some study before and to learn how to generate them. Okay? Now maybe, you know, then you could say, well, what about somebody who practiced in a previous life and then they have those imprints and then in this lifetime, you know, they bodhicitta just arises in their mind. Um, it would seem to me, I mean, if you're going to have somebody who, who has really uncontrived bodhicitta arise in their mind as a child, it would seem to me that they probably would have had some remembrance of the path or some affinity with Buddhism or something uh, where they would meet a teacher who would, you know, be able to validate their experience or something like that, okay? Yeah, I mean, some, there's possible somebody who had so many imprints from a previous life you know, that that realization would come in their mind. But then, once you start to study, I mean, that, that person who had that much, that many strong imprints so that that realization came in their mind as a child would definitely have the karma to meet the Dharma. Yeah. And then once having met the Dharma, then, you know, as you learn kind of what the definitions and demarcations are, then you compare what you have to, to that definition. But as we were just saying, some people can say, I realize bodhicitta, but maybe they haven't. In other words, they had some kind of experience, they gave it that label, but 
that wasn't actually the, the correct label to give to it. Yeah. So just because we think we've realized something doesn't mean we have. Yeah. And that's the value of studying these kinds of texts because then we, we learn kind of what are, you know, what are the signs of having certain understandings. Oh, no, that's true. I didn't think of that. Yeah. So, and solitary realizers, you know, the, the, the life in which they attain arhatship, there is no Buddha in the, in the world at that time. But I still think somebody who is practicing as a solitary realizer about ready to attain arhatship, they know the Dharma and they must know, you know, some of this stuff. Otherwise, how did they get to that point in the path in their last lifetime? Yeah. Um, I also am wondering, when we talk about like the technical definitions of mm-hmm. entering a path in the stages, uh-huh. the past, um, it seems like those definitions sort of developed historically over time. Mm-hmm. And so... Like, how is there, what is the valid, you know, the reliable basis for giving those labels um, if they kind of were just kind of, it seems like they kind of were developed by, by the practitioners over time. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if some of these labels of the stages uh, and paths were developed over time by practitioners, uh, what makes them valid? Okay. Well, first of all, some of, I mean, when you look at the ten grounds, they're talked about in the sutras themselves. Okay. But it's true, a lot of the definitions were kind of um, made more, made clearer and, and so on. But, you know, all of these things, it's, it's just what we were talking about before. You pick out some information and you give it a label and a concept, and it doesn't exist from its own side as that. You know, but we have, but we use labels and contact. I mean, they they made up the system of the five paths and said this is the demarcation, and you know, and like Sarah J says, you have to have um, serenity to enter the first path, first bodhisattva path. Not all the schools agree on that, so they may have different definitions of it. Okay, but it's it's still so it's not like the paths are inherently existent. You know, again, you're picking out information and giving it a label. But picking out certain information and giving it a label is very useful, isn't it? You know, because it gives us some context. I mean, you could have said the path, because path of accumulation is just a label, it's just a sound, before anybody labeled it on having such and such a realization, we could have said this is the path of accumulation. Yeah? Okay, <laughs> but um, you know, but having you know people make up these things like first grade, second grade, you know, all these these are just categories human beings made up. You know, whatever grade you're in, it's it's just you know it's just people made certain demarcations among third graders. There's incredible variety of people, but still. When you say third grade, it gives you some idea, yeah. And we use it conventionally, and it's and it's helpful. Okay, so the same thing, you know, when we're talking about these different stages, so that we have some conventional framework about uh, to use to talk about the different realizations that you have to gain along the path, you know. Because if we don't have that. Uh, you know, system of kind of what you need to realize and how these realizations relate to each other. And nobody's thought about that. Nobody's written it down from their own experience. Then we could all go around saying, I'm enlightened. And there would be no possible criteria to use to to refute that. Because enlightenment, you know, anybody, and lots of people do, they go around saying they're enlightened. Yeah? But when you have 
commonly agreed upon, even if it's generally commonly agreed upon criteria for something, then you can see if that's a correct label to put on a certain experience. That making some sense to you? Yeah, it does. Yeah? It still seems like it's limited to, I mean, the way that we're defining it is limited to this kind of, um, you know, Buddhist and more specifically um tradition. Mm-hmm. So that, like, other people wouldn't agree on that definition of enlightenment or it's possible they wouldn't. Yeah, well, there, there could be that different religions have different definitions of enlightenment, that's okay. That's no problem. It's just when you're talking, you have to talk about what what is your definition of enlightenment. Okay. Actually, within the Buddhist uh, system, you have that too. There's some schools that use the, um, the initial experience of emptiness as saying that's your first enlightenment. You know, whereas in our tradition, you don't use enlightenment until you're talking about the end of the path. But other Buddhist traditions may say enlightenment is a, you know, a realization of a direct perceiver of emptiness. Okay, so you have to know the system within which you're speaking. Otherwise, people just don't understand each other. Okay. Yeah. So in one way, you look at the stages in the past, and it's all a bunch of labels that are artificially imposed on a whole stream of experience. But it can be, and that's fine, you know, none of these things inherently exist. I mean, all these paths and stages, none of them inherently exist. But it is a good conceptual framework to use to communicate and to assess where you're at. You know, just like we have an educational system and you have to fulfill certain requirements to get a certain piece of paper. And that's all completely created by human beings. Yeah, it's a completely artificial system that's imposed. But it's useful, you know, because if you're going to hire somebody for a job, you want to see if they studied certain things. Yeah. Or you you want to see if they got those grades, whether they know the material or not is a completely different matter. You know, but we think that the grades indicate something about the knowledge, you know, of the person. It's not necessarily true, but you know, we have to have somewhere to start, don't we? Okay. Let's see how we get into trouble. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah.